your ears do not deceive you. You have just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. This is Byron O'Neill, media editor for Comic Book Yeti. And today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Lizzie Kay, the founder of Cast Iron Books. Thanks for joining me today, Lizzie. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, I want to start off with the name Cast Iron Books. It immediately makes me think of cooking with my grandma when I was a kid, specifically cornbread in my case. But so where did that name come from and what made you want to start a publishing company? Oh, wow. Okay. So the name was a really interesting one. I'd been... I'd been circling around the idea that my next step was probably going to be my own company, right? Like it had become clear to me that that's the direction that I was going in and that was probably what was gonna happen. It's not necessarily what I had planned for my life in general or had ever wanted necessarily, but that's what was gonna happen. Um, And I was really, really struggling with what do you call it? Because a publishing company is, you know, so many things you could pull on, so many ideas and so many of the good names are taken. Um, and I was I was having a chat with a friend of mine in the pub and we were just talking and talking. We were joking about something and how, you know, out of the frying pan into the fire. But we'd also been talking about cast iron pans, weirdly, cast iron skillets. And I just laughingly and jokingly said, oh, maybe it's cast iron books. And he went, yes, it is. I was like, oh, OK, yeah, it is. And luckily it wasn't taken. So... <laughs> So that's where the name came from. And I was really wanting to, and it kind of felt right to me because I was really wanting to evoke that idea of, yeah, it's always been there. It's always been in the background. It's solid, it's dependable. It's a little bit artisan. I was very arrogantly viewing, you know, thinking 20 years down the line, what is cast iron books gonna stand for? And sort of, for me, it made sense. It, it kind of worked. So yeah, yeah. That's, that's where the name came from. Certainly stands the test of time. <laughs> it does, hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> There's also a cute thing of like the way you make cast iron is you you add graphite. Okay. I thought, I don't know. I mean, no, literally no one else knows that probably because they didn't go deep in the Wikipedia pages of, of creating cast iron. But yeah, that's part of it. Those are the tangents you go down when you're trying to come up with a name for a company. It was, I mean, it was a months long process. <laughs> <laughs> it took a long time. There were many mood boards and, and just randomly popping up saying, what about X? And it's like, no taken yeah (laughs) well as i understand it the company is just a few years old now so are you a one person show one person show and june is our second yeah i'm so sorry that's my cat um second birthday is uh we've just had our second birthday so founded in june of 2020 um in yeah in the in the midst of the joyful first lockdown in the uk and yeah it's a one-man band I do absolutely everything. Well, yeah. having read many of the project, I have to say that the the range and style and talent genre, you know, how those creative teams, you know, play with the comics format, each is pretty unique. You know, it's, it's different from, from what I'm seeing from a lot of publishers that try to stay in one lane. So what are you typically looking for in a pitch, a story, a creative team? It's an interesting one because I... I'm trying to, I feel like there is a thread that, that brings all of the books together and it, and you're right, it isn't genre and it isn't art style and it isn't um, message or necessarily even story. But I feel like the thing that joins all of these books together is that they're all driven from sort of a character centered focus and they do have a message which isn't necessarily 
at the forefront of the story. It's they are not campaigning books. They're not, um, you know, what they're trying to say is something about the human experience. And that's really what I'm looking for. And I, so as a result, I don't care about genre. Like if it's a character driven story that's commenting on the human experience, that will come through regardless of the genre. So that's kind of, I mean, there are certain things that, I generally kind of stay away from, you know, like I'm not really an action comics person. I'm not really a horror comics person. And that's purely because quite often those stories, and they're great, a lot of them are so great, but they aren't necessarily coming from that, that, you know, wider commentary space. They're quite often driven by the action or driven by the jump scare or driven by those ideas. And that doesn't really speak to me as a reader. And that's kind of what I'm looking for. I'm, I, I kind of know it when I see it. Okay. Well, the team, the, the term ethos gets thrown around a lot in the, the publishing realm, for sure. You know, I mean, why not? It, it's really a great word. But, you know, what, what is your, your ethos as a, as a publisher? And what makes Cast Iron different from other publishers? I think my ethos as a publisher is that there's a couple, actually. So the, pub, like the comics industry and graphic novel publishing specifically is, is a really interesting area of the of the publishing industry and it is very much a niche and there are so many different spaces within it you know there's the single issue the direct market there's the manga there's the young adult there's all of these different spaces existing within it and for me I was looking at what was happening in the wider industry you know and sort of the directions that the wider industry was moving in and I was thinking especially in the UK and a little bit I think is the same in the United States I was kind of thinking to myself there aren't there aren't really spaces or that many spaces now for young or debut creators to produce long form work that reaches like finds a readership and a lot of publishers are you know doing their best but it is a difficult thing to do um, it's a difficult thing to get behind because of the financial constraints because of the amount of work it takes to bring these books out and for me my ethos was very much about we need to be making sure that these voices and these creators are getting their moment or getting their opportunity because that's how we grow the wider industry and medium as a whole that's how we protect the future of this medium is making sure that it doesn't just become an ip farm or it doesn't just become purely you know characters who've been around for 90 years new stories for those characters there's absolutely space for both of those things but we need to protect the space for the debut creators who are going to explore the medium and push it forward and for me that's that's sort of like the the linchpin for what I'm thinking about when I'm doing when I'm working on cast iron books is how can we make it that comics as a medium and graphic novels as a product are beautiful pieces of artwork that are going to stand the test of time and really demonstrate the power of sequential art and let debut creators have that moment to do that that's kind of where I'm coming from Okay. Well, I'm talking about the, the medium in general, you know, mm -hmm. comics are increasingly global. You know, you have extensive experience with your time at Titan, bringing comics from, you know, one vernacular space kind of into another. So is, is there a difference in the kind of stories that, that you see that are popular in the European market that people are favoring over kind of the U.S. domestic markets or? Yeah. I mean, there's a huge difference between those two markets. I think more so than people really realize. Um, a tricky one I mean at its most basic level the art styles are very different like completely different art styles 
and it's it's very interesting so in my you know pre-covid times i used to i used to be um an examiner for the one of the italian comic schools and i would go out every year and be on the examining board and it was very very interesting because we could you know we would sit down and we would review portfolios and you know the student would say i want to work for the french market i want to work for the american market and worlds apart the work they're doing absolutely worlds apart and you know the approaches are very different and the, the way that comics are treated in in the wider publishing industry but also by the wider readership are very different you know i think we are seeing in let's call it the anglophone because i think the you know the uk and the usa have fairly similar markets at the moment um obviously there's a huge amount of crossover so in the anglophone market we are seeing an increase in interest in some ways um, outside of the traditional comic book people, there is an increase and obviously things like Heartstopper on Netflix are helping in like the rise of manga and, you know, Scholastic and Random House uh, graphics and the kids, they, they're doing amazing work in those areas of like feeding material for the younger readers. That's already, that's been happening in France. That's just how it is you know, in the French market, which is huge. That's that's just how it is. <laughs> it's a completely different way of doing things. There's no, there's no stigma, there's no question mark over is this valuable material. In the French market, it is. It's it's absolutely valuable. And it's been around a while. It's been around a really long time. I mean the, the gen the genesis of the French market is fascinating in itself because it, you know, it was born out of Vichy, it was born out of, you know, they had they'd been importing a lot of the comics before the, the Second World War. And then obviously that all got shut. Yeah, I'm sure I'm telling you stuff you already know, but I find it fascinating because that is how the French market developed in such a different way. So there is there is that that schism point between the two markets that you can see. And I don't really foresee them coming back together at any point. And I kind of hope they don't because I think it's really fantastic that we have these pockets of different kinds of work and different ways of exploring the media throughout the world. I think it's I think it's something really special. And we see obviously again we see it you know when you head out to Japan and China it's again it's a completely different market. Sequential art is a very different thing out there. So I think it's fantastic. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it it seems that. very emergent. I mean, even with the big two pulling much more in especially in terms of artists from I've noticed a lot of Brazil you know lots of South yes. America there's some beautiful absolutely beautiful artwork coming out of Brazil really beautiful stuff sometimes and I think a lot of the Italian um like some of the Italian artists are absolutely brilliant beautiful beautiful work but some of the very best go to the French market <laughs> so you know um it's it's just really really interesting to see so you've historically been focused, you know, on the crowdfunding comics format, mm -hmm. specifically Kickstarter. You know, mm -hmm. that that landscape has recently become a little more volatile with Kickstarter's announcement about the blockchain initiative, you know, and, and their new players like Zoop are entering into the picture. You know, I'm not asking you to get into the politics of it all, but have you seen anything that's making you want to consider other options with direct marketing? You know, Iron Circus is starting to do more of their own direct marketing. Yeah, they have absolutely, and Shortbox in the UK has done a lot as well. Um, I mean, the Iron Circus, and I think I think Spike Trotman did it, gave a really good interview to Rob Selkowitzer about this, and like talking about the move to the direct market, and like that they would no longer be working with Kickstarter. They were they were very honest about the fact that you know they've been going for ten years. They have an incredible list. They have an incredible like following and leadership, uh, like readership, and people who 
are really incredibly supportive of what they do, which they have built up by producing consistently excellent work over a decade and initially using Kickstarter. So when I saw that, I was like, yeah, absolutely. That is completely the right step for you and your company at this point in time. Brilliant idea. And, you know, I see that they're all, you know, it's working out for them. So that's fantastic. Um, in terms of crowdfunding in general, like I've been working in crowdfunding now for five years, five, yeah. So prior to sort of engaging more closely with Kickstarter, I was at a UK-based crowdfunding, crowdfunding publisher, um, which had its own platform. And it's a, it, it's a tricky thing. Crowdfunding is always very difficult. I think anyone who goes into it thinking it's, it's a quick answer to anything is, in for a shock it's um it's a tough tough business it's a tough industry um but it has significant benefits um i'm excited to see the new players coming onto the scene i'm very excited to see what zoop are going to be able to do there's another one as well crowdfunder mm -hmm. they're coming i think they're launching this month um i i'm going to be watching with interest how how that develops and you know i'm I'm, you know, I, we've had a lot of success with Kickstarter, um, you know, five for five in yeah. just over a year. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, I can't, that's not to be sniffed at. So I'm, yeah, but I'm very interested to see how it develops. And I hope there will be more engagement with crowdfunding publishers and crowdfunded books from the wider market and from the retailers as well. I think that's something that's for me, that's the next genesis and the next sort of evolution of the industry is seeing a bit more, a little bit more understanding from the from the retail side and the distribution side of how crowdfunding is really important and growing in the comics industry and wider publishing industry. So hypothetically, let's say I'm thinking about running a crowdfunded graphic novel campaign. So first, why do I need a publisher? And you know, why don't I go it alone? And why should I pick Cast Iron? Well, so interesting, yeah, very interesting question. So first of all, you don't need a publisher. Like, let's just put that out there. You don't need a publisher. It's absolutely brilliant and possible to do it on your own. And lots of people do, and they do a fantastic job and they produce wonderful books and they're very, very beautiful. You might like a publisher, because quite often that publisher, especially in my case, will take on the um, less fun bits of, <laughs> of both the crowdfunding process and the uh, actual publishing process. Um, and that's, I mean, that's the reason why you would perhaps want to work with a publisher. I think often also publishers have a slightly easier time getting into those retail spaces than a self-published author would do. However, you don't necessarily need to be in those retail spaces and, you know, bookshops. You don't necessarily need to be in them. Like we said, you have now direct consumer options, which five years ago weren't quite as developed. And now they are slightly more developed. So you don't necessarily even have to have it for that. But you might like it. I think it's good to have options. I think everyone should have every option they want. But yeah, in terms of how Carstand Books handles that. So basically, I, I do everything. <laughs> So when it comes to actually setting up, like it is a cast iron books Kickstarter campaign. It is not on, the onus is not on the author or creators to run the campaign. Obviously I, we work very closely together, which is partly why I do so few books a year because it's a very intense close working relationship while, while we're campaigning and also while we're developing the projects and then producing the projects. Um, 
I manage and project manage the campaign. It is put together by me with help from the author and support from the author and equally I support them in producing what's needed for it. The onus is on, is on sort of, is on us shared equally, I would say during the campaign process. Once it finishes, it is down to me to make sure that it's fulfilled. It is down to me to make sure that it's shipped out. It is down to me to make, to do all the other bits basically. Um, I don't know if all other crowdfunding publishers do it like that. I haven't ever asked, but that's how I do it because that's how I that ha that's how it makes sense to me. That's how it becomes a a partnership that is equitable and fair. I've worked with many artists over the years, been one myself for a period of time, and we're not always the best self marketers. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there is that. I mean, I do think that if you want to. I, I do think that it takes a certain kind of person to do a crowdfunding campaign. Like it's it's a difficult ask in many ways, in a way that sometimes I think publishing in general doesn't recognize because in a way we're not asking a creator or an author or an artist to do anything differently, except it's public. You know, all of that, all of that promotion is gonna happen in the traditional publishing space as well. You are gonna be out there saying, hey, my new book is out. Hey, this is, you know, coming soon you know, final order cut off, please order, ask your local comic shop, all of that kind of thing. You are doing that promotion. When you're crowdfunding, you're doing it up front and you're doing it public. And there is, if it doesn't work out, that failure is public. And that's a big emotional ask of someone. That is a really big thing to ask someone to do. And that's partly why I think sometimes working with a publisher is a good thing because you're not doing it alone. There is someone who is, out there with you like standing up there as well saying please support this like we we need you your help to make this happen and if it doesn't work out it's on both of you and especially the way I do things is like if it if it didn't ever didn't work out touch wood if it ever didn't work out I've got plan b I've got plan c I've got plan d I can go I can keep going I have many other plans <laughs> for that project you know and that I think is is important is to sort of, that's one, one of the things that a publisher can bring to the table when it comes to a crowdfunding campaign, but it's a big ask. And it's not, it's not for everyone. Like there are some projects that I see where I'm like, this is beautiful and this is a great story. This is a great book. I would love to, I'd love to do this. But what I know about that creator or that artist is that it would not, it would not work for them. It would make them unhappy to go through that process. And I have, absolutely no interest in making people unhappy like that's uh, it would be cruel you know it would just be cruel so it's not for everyone it can be very successful but yeah it's it's a hard thing to do it's an emotional loss well I've seen that with with many a friend having gone through it so yeah 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 well we've been doing publisher interviews recently at comic book yeti and we've been asking publishers about pay and intellectual property rights. If that's something you feel like you can talk about, you know, we'd love to know how these things work with Cast Iron. So Cast Iron is basically a joint venture. So, I mean, I, I don't think I particularly made a secret of this. Um, it's, my goal with Cast Iron Books is not necessarily to set the world on fire. My goal is to make beautiful books and to keep them, you know, like I said earlier about that ethos of like, keep these beautiful books coming into the space. Um, my ethos in terms of financials is that Carson Books does not make more ever 
than the creator and the owner of the property. In terms of intellectual property, the copyright remains with the author, creator, artist, whatever you want to call it. I pretend, tend to go with creator. I know not everyone likes that, but it's a good catch-all. Um, <laughs> in terms of further rights, I do not take film TV adaptation rights. That is not my bag. That is not my space. Like, it would be... I mean, you know, some people have said you really should be, and it's like, yeah, I probably should be, but I, that's not what I do. I make books and I would much prefer, and it does happen a lot that, you know, I get um, scouts getting in touch or agencies getting in touch. And for me, that's so exciting because I get to say like, here is that person's email address. Go off and, and do that. That's fantastic. Because it, it's exciting. It's thrilling. So, but yeah, that's not my space. I don't do that. So. I don't take those rights. So I just take the print and um, digital rights for that. Okay. Yeah, I know a lot of, you know, independent publishers now are, are looking at securing those, you know, distribution deals. They're trying to bring lots of non-comics readers into the medium, kind of using it as that IP farm, as you've kind of talked about. You That's know. not my thing. Right. So what is your growth plan then? Well, for a start, I don't believe in, in growth in that way. Okay. Okay. <laughs> that's that's and again, like when I was setting up the company and, and building the business plan and uh you know talking to all the people about you know here's how I'm thinking it would work, that was a question that came up a lot, like the growth imperative. I fundamentally reject the growth imperative. I think it's I think it's an incredibly damaging um concept that has infected modern society. And not to go too like woo and crazy about it but yeah I fundamentally reject it I don't think I don't think it's necessarily compatible with creativity and art and beauty and I'm interested in creativity and art and beauty and if I can find a way to make that happen then I will and so far it's working out but in terms of in terms of like am I planning to take over the world absolutely not have you seen the state of it I don't want it my god like indeed you know no so I I'm happy being small I'm happy to stay small I'm happy to make sure that my authors are happy and having opportunities and having opportunities for them to grow their careers but that doesn't necessarily mean that Carl Sun Books needs to double or triple its output every year absolutely not no I don't think the market can sustain it I don't think the readership's there right now which is a sadness, but yeah, like yeah. hopefully maybe in 10 years, I'll have been proved horribly wrong. And those two or three or four books a year that I, that I do are, you know, enormous issues and big things um, because there is a first for comics across a wider readership, but we shall see. So what, what would make you happy then? If not, if, if we're not talking about a growth plan, let's say, five years down the road you know where would, where would you like to see things um five years down the road this is where it sounds ridiculous five years down the road I would like some what would I like nothing like for me happy is walking into a bookshop and seeing a cast on books title on a shelf and authors going from cast on books to a much bigger publisher and going on to make incredible other projects with working with new people. Like I want Cast Iron Books to open doors for people and for them to walk away from it feeling like that was a good thing. I'm glad I did that. And it means that I can do X. It means I can do Y. And that, that's what I want. I want to 
I want it to be that it's a it's a good launch. It gets you out into that space and it gives you opportunities and it ho and hopefully it's a pleasant experience while doing it. Because publishing is brutal. <laughs> it's a brutal industry. I, I'm starting to get that window for sure. <laughs> But you do have all your hair like they can't you can't see this on a podcast format but like you're not graying and and you still have all your hair I'm, hey i'm yeah you know it's so funny i used to work um there was a years ago i worked for a, a publishing company and um and it was graphic novels and um it was back in the day and i can pinpoint the book that gave me my first gray hair oh. i think i know exactly what book it was <laughs> so that, that was your getting time a new one for each book now so that's quite nice <laughs> and that was your time at unbound then no, that was at Self Made Hero. Oh, okay, okay. That was yeah, that was so. So my my sort of comics journey was I I went into Self Made Hero about twelve years ago and was there for four years, and then I went to Titan, and I was at Titan for a few years, and then I went to Unbound, and then yeah, and then Cast on Books. Okay, are there still Unbound titles that that you were exposed to that haven't we haven't seen yet? Yes, there are. It's super okay. exciting. So um, I was very like when I parted ways with Unbound, we sort of I took a number of the titles with me because um, we had, you know, we'd already done a lot of work on them. So they came over to Cast Down Books, which was really great to be able to do that. And so we've already had a few of those come out. So our very first book, Future, that uh, by Tom Woodman and Rupert Smithson with Aditya Bidika on letters. That was that was a Unbound title and that came over and that was fantastic. Um, the Plague and Doctor came, our second book by G. Gallus again. Um, Candles, interestingly, was, uh, which is by Lyndon White, that was one that had been on Unbound, but it came over in a separate situation. It, you know, we just, we started from scratch. Lyndon's a complete madman. He was like, actually, I want to start again. It's like, have at it, off you go. <laughs> like, okay. absolutely. Um, and it's, beautiful so he yeah he was right um but yeah there's um there's a few more so our most recent kickstarter was for the boy with nails for eyes by sean gardner which is currently at the printer and we are you know just crossing our fingers that everything you know there's enough being fed into the paper feeder um and uh that one was an unbound book our next one is isabella and Blodwin by Rachel Smith and that campaign will be launching probably in July end of July I would say um, and that was an unbound book and then we have one more next year which is called like an orange which is a bit of a departure um, and that's by Wallace Eats and it's a really interesting non-fiction book about brain injury okay huge departure <laughs> but it's, it's beautiful beautiful comics it's incredible it's an incredible exploration of what you can do with the medium so well, um, this is just me being nosy, but in addition to, to being a publisher, you're also an editor. And, and I looked on your website and you compared that to being a midwife, Yeah, which is fascinating. I've, I've never heard those comparisons drawn before. So can you break down how those are related? Well, first of all, I have no idea what being a midwife is actually like. So if there are <laughs> any midwives listening, um, that is just me being cute with words. I actually don't know what your job is like. I'm sure it's much more difficult than editing a book absolutely guarantee it is um but yeah I, I kind of see it in the in the I hope that we're taking the same kind of role in that it's about you know it's about bringing a book into the world in a way that is it makes it the best that it can be and makes the process of bringing that book into the world the smoothest and happiest and 
most fulfilling experience that it can be. And, you know, you're guiding the ship, you're steering the ship a little bit, but really you're letting the author and the creator express what they need to express. So, you know, it's sort of, I'm, I'm sort of standing there, I'm standing by, but the author is the one who is having to actually do, do that work and make that beautiful thing happen. But just I'm there to clean up the pieces and make sure everything's where it should be <laughs> at all times. <laughs> Polish everything off a little bit. And then well, just, you know, just wrap it up, package it. You know, we're, we're all good. It's all, everything's, everyone's still breathing. Everyone's got all their digits. That's, that's what we're going for. But yeah, I, I see it very much as a support role and very much as a, as a, you know, helping to shape a little bit that this is, it's, you know, it's not my book, it's the author's book. It needs to, it needs to be their book. And however we can make that happen is how we make that happen. So did you ever fancy yourself wanting to be a writer or is the editor publisher role your happy place? Absolutely never wanted to be able to be a writer. Absolutely not. No. I know everyone says, oh, all editors are frustrated writers. Maybe some are, I'm not. Jesus, it looks terrible. <laughs> it's like a horrible thing to do to yourself. Um, no, it's not, it's not my kind of thing. I, I much prefer I like I like the problem solving that comes with editorial work and, and I like the variety. Um, my partner, my partner has to write a lot and I oh God, it looks terrible. Like at least, at least, you know, at least my problems, there is a solution quite often. Sometimes there's no solution in writing. That looks dreadful. Can't can't imagine it. So no, I have no, I have no secret hidden desire to be a writer. <laughs> I've always imagined it's easier easier to cut things off than to wonder when to quit. So that that's how I look at it. Yeah, I'm I'm very happy to. I'm very I I really do love development. I love doing development work with people. And when I when I ever get you know some time, I love taking on development projects and doing that kind of thing. But actually sitting down and putting it on paper, no, no, not for me. <laughs> So where can listeners find you online, Cast Iron Online, or whether would you prefer to be found? Because, you know, there are differences. There are differences. So we are on Instagram and Twitter. I don't think we're on Facebook unless someone's set up a fake account because that wasn't me. But um, yeah, so on Instagram and Twitter, we are at Cast Iron Books. Um, the Twitter is slightly more active, I would say, than me, Instagram. Um, and that's that's the best place to find news about what's going on with Cast Iron Books and you know upcoming releases, um, which we have a couple of you know events now that we are all going out in the world and can start doing events again. So for anyone in the UK, we will be in York on the twenty. I'm not sure when this is going out actually, but we are doing a signing in York on the twenty fifth of June. Um, and this is probably coming out before after then, but anyway, um, we'll be there and then we'll be doing some events later on in the summer for The Boy With Nails for Eyes by Sean Gardner, um, which you can find out more about on our Twitter. If you want to come and have a look at the books and buy direct, always nice to buy direct from the publisher, um, you can do that at castlandbooks.com. Um, we do ship internationally and we, are, we hold stock in the States, so it's not, you know, a four month process. Hopefully, she says. <laughs> it's not a four-month process. Um, in terms of me personally, I can be found on Twitter and Instagram, um, mostly on Twitter, though, and it's Lizzie HK. All right. Well, Lizzie, thanks for joining me today on the show to talk about Cast Iron Books. 
Um, it's it's been a total pleasure. I've been a backer on several of the campaigns that I see behind you. Not that everybody else is going to see this on the podcast, but yes, yes. Shout out yes. to to Sierra for Hans. Yes, Vogel. yes, 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 yes. That's one we didn't get to talk about because it wasn't an unbound but Hans Vogel. I absolutely love this book so much, and I felt so I was so thrilled because you were able to do the two covers. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you. In fact, did you did you get the two? I don't know. I can't remember which cover you got now. Um, the white one. Did you? Yes. Thank you. That means you returned your your um your backer survey early. <laughs> that's how we did that. I was threatened. Um, Sierra threatened me. So. Oh, good. No, that's the way to do it, though. Yeah. That is really what I asked her to do. So it's fine. Um. No. So yeah, that was that was um our most recent release that came out in March of this year, and that can be found and that can be bought from us directly at Castan Books or ask your local comic shop and they can get in touch and order it. Awesome. Well, Lizzie, thanks so much. It's been awesome. Thank you so much. This has been lovely. Yeah. This is Brian O'Neill on behalf of all of us at Comic Book Yeti. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptic Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.